2: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Sarah, Editorial Assistant at Prospect, and today I'm joined by my colleagues, Emily Lawford and Samir Rahim, to discuss our summer cultural highlights, highbrow, lowbrow, and everything in between. For the most recent issue of Prospect, Sekdev Sandhu wrote a piece about summer in film. He argued that summer is a sentimental education a portal to feelings that, once experienced, are impossible to subdue. From a performance of Wagner's Ring Cycle in the Proms, to Call Me By Your Name on the big screen, to Tessa Hadley's The Past, read on a Stuffy Train, today, Samir, Emily and I will discuss the books, film, TV and theatre that we think best captures the restless, fleeting spirit of summer. So, first of all, Samir, what does summer mean to you? What does it mean for a cultural work to have summer energy?
0: I think there's a difference which Sukdev actually outlines in this piece between things that you go to during summer and things that are about summer. Often the ones that are most evocative of summer and ones that you see in the depths of winter and give you that sort of feeling of glow. He talks about Summer with Monica, the Bergman film, which um, I remember seeing as on a sort of Bergman Marathon about five years ago. Um, And it is a wonderful, wonderful film. But if you'd seen it in summer, you would be inside in a cold, dark cinema room when you should be a of baggie's in the piece out there making the kind of memories that get turned into, turned into films.
1: And Emily, what about you? For me, something that is about summer, it has to capture that real sense of that fleeting nature. I think you feel like you're on holiday, you want it's love stories that don't last, it's violence that starts and ends quickly. It's all about it's not building plans and nestling down for autumn or winter. It's all about an adventure, a quick a sense of holiday, even if you're not on holiday. And
2: Samir, can you tell us why you commissioned Sut Dev's piece and your thoughts on any of the films that he writes about? Um, what I really got from the piece was like the two distinct ideas of summer that he puts forward, like the humid, hot, pressure cooker atmosphere of anger and tension that the season can create, but also the languid, wistful nature of last summer. I think
0: Emily was alluding to that. Yeah, it's both, isn't it? Well, I think Siddharth suggested this idea, and I just thought, yeah, it's it, it's a great it's a great sense because there is there is such a thing as a summer movie because uh, although they're blockbusters and summer, he said the cinema um, executives and movie executives they hate the summer because everyone's outside and they're not going inside watching the films. Um, And he suggested that Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing was one of the summer films and that was an immediate surprise to me because I I thought of course that is a great summer film I remember watching it probably um, on Channel 4 in the early 1990s I think it came out in 1989 in the cinema Um, And um, for those who don't know, it's it's about uh, an area in New York and it's about tensions between the black community and uh, the Italian-American community and Spike Lee himself plays the main character. I still have bits of that movie stuck in my mind. It's a long, hot summer. And Mookie, the main character, is always having to go into the shower and showering. Um, but his shower's so sort of feeble that it sort of drips out and no one can get cool and no one can afford air conditioning. So they're all sitting outside. And the tensions between the uh, the black community, the American community, are really brought out. Um, and it then overflows into a horrible act of, Violence. So it's a really political film, um, but it's also something that captures something about the tension of summer and I remember in 2011 when we had the London riots I really thought back to that film and I thought yes, this is about social pressures. This is about poverty. This is about um, Exclusion and alienation, but it's also about it's the summer holidays. People are bored. It's hot And somehow these things take on momentum of their own. So it really captures that kind of um, social but also you know the, the weather can affect politics
2: yeah i think it's really weird how it feels like this summer the world is ki- the weather is kind of directly mimicking the political pressures that we're facing like it's kind of making them feel so stark and real that it's 35 degrees every day and it's so hot and it's so stifling and also it's a cost of living crisis and we're not going to be able to afford our energy it's got that kind of like febrile dramatic intense feeling
0: Yeah, you know, you want to put your fans on uh, a full blast 24 hours a day and then you find the bill at the end of the month. I mean, there will be people who, you know, people who won't be able to cool their houses because they just can't afford to do that. So whether we start thinking of, well, winter fuel payments to help people warm their houses, maybe we're going to have to start start thinking about summer fan or even air conditioning payments so they can cool them.
2: Um, And Emily, you were talking a bit more about like the opposite kind of some of a wistful romantic one um what films capture
1: that for you um two films that immediately spring to mind are before sunrise and call me by your name they're both well uh before sunrise it's an american guy and a french girl in vienna it's over the course of one day and night it's so fleeting it's so quick it's just a complete adventure it's not meant to go anywhere they don't even exchange numbers at the end it's just about that moment of romance that moment of excitement you can't really imagine that happening in winter it's a sense of adventure it's a sense of restlessness they both for various reasons feel untethered in their life they don't really know what they're doing they're not on direct courses and they both had breakups semi-recently semi I believe and it's that excitement I don't think you just get off a train with someone in October as you would in summer do you think it's an accurate depiction of a summer romance? <laughs> well, I a few years ago, I had a summer romance that was a much less romantic version of that. I was on a group holiday in um, Ireland, on an island off the coast of Ireland. And because I had to go home early for an internship, I had a layover for six hours in Dublin in an afternoon. It was after the time museums were closed, so I didn't know what to do. So the night before I set my hinge, to Dublin and I found an Irishman who agreed to take me round. We, we, we went to an Irish pub and we went around Trinity Dublin and yeah, we kissed in park and then he, he took the bus with me all the way to the airport and we um, embraced in the departure lounge and it was very romantic, but of course it wouldn't have been that romantic had that been a date in London, because you can just up the stakes because it's going nowhere. And it just feels, you can feel as romantic as you want because it's a short-term adventure.
0: Did you agree to meet a year later in exactly the same place (laughs) and time? And did either of you turn up?
1: Well, we didn't because at the back of my mind, I knew for various reasons, this man isn't actually suited to me, which in London would have made the date a lot worse. But there it didn't matter. So I thought, let's just end it. However, we did. He did have me on Hinge. So he did, when I got back to London, he did message me a few times and that, that irritated me because I felt like it was quite unromantic to ruin it by trying to keep chatting. There was no point, we were divided by the Irish Sea. And I would have rather he just left it at that. So I did ghost him.
0: But it's the serendipity of, um, in the film, which I absolutely love um, and is definitely, feels like when I first watched it, it was the kind of experience that I would wish that I would be having um, but, but, but wasn't happening, wasn't happening. Um, but they meet on the train, didn't they, in the sort of circumstances, but now of course you've got technology which allowed you to sort of short circuit that and you can just find someone, but then, you know, they can trace you and suddenly it becomes, a like, it sort of ruins the whole narrative, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it completely did. I would have rather he'd not said anything, but... There's no way now you can't find someone if you want to find them. And, you know, in the film, they don't really, they ask all these deep questions about each other, but they're not asking practical questions about how would our future life work together? How many children do you want? Where would you want to live? Which city? Which continent? And that's because they not they don't have to think about it practically. Whereas now there's no way not to know those things.
0: But funny enough, it's that, there's the two sequels, which are 10 years later and then 10 years after that, um, which are really brilliant as well. It it, it, that really gets into those questions, Mm. you know, long-term relationships. What does it mean to build a relationship with someone over a long term? Um, And and I think it's a really interesting idea that Linklater originally, the filmmaker, wanted to explore. Well, what if this fleeting romance lasted for Mm. ages? And and the Julie Delpy character is so good because she's so beautiful and waif-like and gentle and sort of basically a kind of male fantasy figure. In the original film. But in the sequels, she gets hardened by life and she gets tougher, she gets funnier, and um, she becomes much more of a person, which I think is reflective somehow of what aging does to you. I almost feel like, particularly her, um, is someone I've grown up with as a sort of someone on screen. And I I wish they just do it every 10 years until they're both 80.
2: That'd be so cool. Yeah. I think I find some really melancholy for that reason. Yeah. Like even that film, that fleeting romance, it's not quite the same in real life. I feel like it's, it's all about like pining for yeah. a fantasy life that for the rest of the year, you can just kind of shove and get on with your real life. But it's something like, oh God, I've got to have these amazing like cinematic experiences. Mm-hmm. And it's quite stressful. My next question is about books. Um, for me, the writing of Tessa Hadley and David Nicholls are two authors that really capture the restlessness of summer, and particularly Tessa Hadley's book *The Past*, which is kind of set in a English countryside cottage. It's like a whole extended family, and the tensions that exist within that family are like really, really brought out by the fact that they're um, brought together in one house, that it's warm, that it's like a beautiful but boring pastoral kind of scene. Um, do either of you have any books that bring out some summer for you? I was
1: just thinking about Brideshead Revisited when they're together, just, let it's so, it's so lazy and they've just got so much time and it feels so endless even though it's short. but it's been a while since I have read it, but...
0: Yeah, I think L.P. Hart needs to go between, um, which has definitely got the well you yeah, know the reopening line the past again the past is a different country um do things differently there um and um it, it, it is also have have those memories of, of summer and long hot summers but also the sense of like corruption at the edge and memories ruined and um, lives destroyed and adventures curtailed um yeah that definitely has a, an atmosphere to it
2: in David Nichols' book, Sweet Sorrow, the main character is like says that never in his life has he been more primed to fall in love. And I feel like that's like you, Emily, on that summer <laughs> that summer adventure. It's like literally waiting for it and then it happens. And in the past, Harriet, who is a really for the rest of the time, is a really um well-behaved character. She's devoted her whole life to helping people, she's a lawyer, I think, um, who works with asylum seekers and stuff. And then she describes herself as being assaulted by outrageous longing um, during that summer, which is, yeah, quite a revelation for her character.
0: Fictionally, it's also just quite useful because you have things like summer holidays, and everyone gathers together in a villa, or they go to um, a swimming pool and gather around there, or they have a family reunion. So, if, if you're a writer, you know kids are on holiday, people take go abroad, they have a change of scenery. Um, yeah, when British sitcoms tended to, to sort of do films, and they would send them on a summer holiday, didn't they? Um, just because you know um, uh, that's a way of sort of changing the context and making them feel bigger by sending them abroad somewhere. And just also, people like to have nice shots of sunny places, and people walking around on beaches.
2: Yeah, I feel like Sally Rooney uses that in both her books. Definitely. Really memorable is that scene in Normal People. The Italian
1: villa, yes. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Um, And Samir, you described in the office that your most, um, your biggest kind of summer cultural memory was a twenty thirteen performance of. Wagner's Ring Cycle in the Proms. That's obviously a highbrow cultural memory. What is it about that that's so special?
0: Um, I think it's because uh, it was kind of the collective experience of it. So there were 6,000 people packed into the Royal Hall. It was the four operas of the Ring Cycle. Um, it was five pounds. I actually paid a bit more to have a seat and I sat in different places or in each four, uh, four operas. And it was the sense that we were so hot, you know. <laughs> it was so, so hot. It was so long. People were standing for hours on end. But there was an exceptional level of just sort of concentration and discipline that kind of engendered because everyone knew that they were going through that. And the music really carried you through. So when you're standing for two hours and two and a half hours ago, um, the real sort of um, eking music and just beautiful um, singing um, really carried you through. For the last one, the Gush Jammeron, I, <laughs> I was late. Um, it's okay, it's like seven hours long, so actually if you're half an hour late. Sorry, uh, Vulcan purists, it doesn't matter that much, there's still plenty more there. Um, but anyway, so I couldn't get to my, the seat that I, I booked, so they sent me up to the gallery. And I'd never been to the gallery in the prompt before. Um, and I found this other world. So you're right at the top, you can lean over and sort of look at the action, but you get a very sort of restricted view. But most people had brought um, sort of blankets and pillows and uh, were set up at, at the back and were sort of lying down in its much less pattern, so it much more cool. So you were lying down almost half asleep or just letting the music totally wash over them. So that for me is a really powerful memory. Of um, again, you know, it's it's inside, it's cool, it's completely dark, um, but uh, it was kind of transporting for me, and then yeah, and yeah, it was just a, it was just an amazing experience. And Barrow himself, you know, he complimented us all at the end, the audience, said, "Well, you know, he probably does this for everyone, but he's like, you know, for you to be standing or being in this hot auditorium for all this time and to have such silence." Um, was tremendous. When he finished the entire opera, there must have been must must have been a minute or a minute and a half of complete silence before the clapping started and I've never experienced that before.
1: It's funny, I think of Wagner is so wintry and north and dark. I've never really thought of it as summery at all.
0: Yeah, that's true, that's true. But then um it it is all about love, isn't it? Mm. So um love is the uh, you know there are serendipitous moments and people fall in love with each other and things go wrong so so maybe we can sort of dredge that up as a summer summer classic but a different kind.
2: I feel like my equivalent of that at the extreme brow end is going to see Grease the musical on Friday which was I thought amazing it's had terrible reviews um but it was the absolute opposite of that in that On on stage, it was so bright, colourful and summery. But it was also the same thing of being inside, being in the dark, it being really hot, it being really warm, but still just being completely taken away.
1: Well, that's your classic example of this beautiful summer romance that suddenly you get back to school and does it work in the real world? Maybe not. Maybe he's a layabout. Maybe she's nerdy. Maybe it's difficult.
2: Yeah. And they can't, and they both have to change to make it work.
1: Yeah. Whereas on the summer, on the beach, it
2: doesn't matter.
0: We had the sad news about Olivia Nietzsche and John uh, today, which seemed to be dominating the Today programme this morning uh, in a sort of odd way, because I mean, obviously, she's a well-beloved um, actor. Uh, but I think it must be to do with that sense of nostalgia uh, that something like Greece does provide, because it's a what, film in, made in the 1970s, but about the 1950s. That's right, isn't it? So there's that double level of nostalgia. So the people who remember watching it first in the 70s, who were then and other generations remembering back to when maybe they were um, younger in the 50s as well. And of course, summer and nostalgia and memories, and as, as Emily's been saying, the fleetingness of them, um, they always seem much more uh, exciting as it were in retrospect, sometimes even than when you're living them in the moment.
2: Yeah, Peter Andre also appeared on the stage, which apparently was on the adverts, but was a big surprise to me, and that added an element of summer nostalgia to it. So, we can't really do a podcast about culture in summer without talking about the elephant in the room, which is Love Island. Um, Samir has strong opinions on this. I have strong opinions the other way. I feel like Emily's in the middle, is that fair? Yeah, but I lean
1: towards your (laughs) side.
2: Um, It did have viewing figures of 1.1 million people this series, it's the most popular series ever. Um, Samir, what's your view on Love Island?
0: I try not to comment on things, um, publicly at least, uh, but I've never watched. Um, So maybe I should just um, keep silent uh, as you guys uh, explain to me why it's so brilliant.
1: You know, Love Island, I was actually thinking earlier when you said watching summer things in winter because they did try a winter series of Love Island and they're going to try it again. And actually, I watched a few episodes and I felt like it really didn't work. I felt like on a January day, going home in the evening to watch people on a beach in, I think it was South Africa, I felt like that really didn't work. I I like watching people on a beach if I think a beach is at least a month away, a few weeks away, or at least London is reasonably hot. I don't really like, and maybe because it's reality TV, maybe i feel differently if it was a more artistic endeavour. But with, with reality TV, I think it only works if you feel like you're at least, you're not that far from where they are.
2: Yeah, I also think it reflects summer in the sense that at the beginning of Love Island, I'm always extremely excited about it. I'm watching it every single night. I'm following it. I'm obsessed with it. But then by the end, you're really starting to peter off. And I do think that it's partly because of the way that they produce the programme. All the excitement kind of dissipates after the middle episodes of Casa and more. But I also think it is that sense of like, as you you know, the excitement of the beginning of summer and then realising back to school is around the corner and real. And they're starting to form real relationships and they do their vows and... It, it becomes more about practical considerations and their families come in and you lose that fleeting, dramatic,
1: earlier aspect of the programme. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the, they often lose their heads early on. They behave in ways where they've completely forgotten that they're being watched. And anyone who was calculated and really wanted to have the biggest financial career afterwards would be extremely kind and upstanding during Love Island a bit dramatic but but you know they never lose their heads in Casa Amor and everyone does it but there's a certain point maybe in the final two weeks when everyone remembers we're going to come back we want to win the 50k we want the great brand deals afterwards and so they're incredibly boring
2: yeah as soon as they think about the future the magic of it is gone and that's I think why Davide and Ekansu won because they were summer in a couple they mm-hmm. were pure chemistry arguments rows iconic phrases no sense of strategic planning for the future.
0: I suppose um, just simply like and you can't avoid the sort of aesthetic of it because of the adverts and the things on Twitter and things like that. I suppose what puts me off it is why have they all got so these sculpted bodies and why are they all in their early twenties and why you know what what we could have a why can't we have a Love Island where everyone's like in their forties and like gone through a divorce and looks a bit flabby and normal and um, has a sense of, I know, I just feel like, you know, <laughs> I'm projecting here, but I, I, I don't feel, I think I can sort of, i haven't been for the divorce, but um, it, we, we, um, we, you know, I find that that as, as characters, wouldn't it be better if they were more various? Because they're just sort of quite samey or they look samey to me. The
2: fact that we only have people who look a certain way is kind of reflective of the fact that we still live in a society where only certain types of bodies are seen as acceptable. And that maybe a 50s plus Love Island would be really radical.
0: Yeah, and the chat about different stuff, and I don't know, maybe you would just... Um, you know, I, I've always been more of a much ado about nothing fan as opposed to Romeo and Juliet.
2: Yeah,
1: it's much more romantic. Yeah.
2: I do think Romeo and Juliet is an iconic summer film,
1: actually. Definitely. Definitely, in terms of the heat and the tension,
2: yeah, it's kind of got both of those two um, arguments, I yeah. feel like, in Suck Dev's piece. It's got the beautiful, languid, romantic side of summer, but also that really tense atmosphere.
0: Verona Beach, isn't it? It's the reset to Los Angeles,
2: mm. it's a kind of Yeah. And finally, Emily and Samir, what are your
1: iconic London summer activities that mean summer to you? For me, I feel like this is so clichéd, but it's swimming in the Hampstead ponds. It's the most wild part of London you feel like you're out of the city I went there two days ago and I intend to go again this week and I like to, I personally like to go in the evening when it's a bit less busy and you don't have to book it used to be it used to be voluntary payments and now it's not and I'm very against that because they're pricing people out of it something like four pounds now um and that means some people who used to go every day can't afford to do that anymore but i love them anyway and it's the most it's you feel like you're in nature even though obviously Hampstead tube is a few minutes away but i would go as often as i can i very much see myself being a 70 year old who goes every day
0: for me it's got to be the saturday test match at lords um, i don't go every summer but when there's a sort of ticket floating around um, i do try and grab it i mean i love the game it's it's great um, it's such a beautiful sort of serene place There's all sorts of things, as in, perhaps as with you in Love Island, there's lots of things about it that are irritating. You know, there is a real sense of snobbery. And uh, there's also, it doesn't have a sort of raucous uh, atmosphere that you sometimes get at um, uh, sporting events and other cricket grounds. It's got a very sort of dampened down sense. But there is something about that murmur that murmur and the bright sun the people wearing the hats and the green turf and the people performing these amazing skills on the, on the cricket field that I think is um, uh, it's quite special and it's also very social as well because you, you meet people there and you can, you know, you, I meet people there sometimes that um, I'll only meet that one day a year and at lunchtime we'll have a chat about whatever and um, yeah so for me it's got to be
1: that.
2: I said that was my final question, I have actually got one more but it's a one word answer for each of you, is summer overall joyful or melancholy? Joyful.
0: I think it's joyful, yeah. You gotta got go for a long walk and have the sun beat down on your face. Yeah, joyful.
1: It's the best season, I think. I think melancholy, but I'm clearly on my own.
0: Sarah, why do you think it's why do you think it's so so melancholy?
2: Oh, it's just so bittersweet and like I also remember as a child just not being able to get out of the the mindset of counting like you're like oh I've got at the beginning of the summer you've got how many days like 30 days now I've got 29 now I've got 28 I'm too aware of how fleeting it is
1: to count it as joyful yeah late August early September is tough but before then it's lovely
0: oh I love that the Indian summer when it's you know September and mm. it's still really warm I mean obviously it's climate change so we shouldn't be approving of that but there is um uh, there is a sense in which summer just doesn't. It still lingers longer than you think it's going to, um, and um, you still feel that sense before you get back into the autumn and the tranche of events and uh, work ramps up and
2: all the rest of it.
0: Yeah, that's a lovely thing.
2: So thanks so much, everyone, for listening to us discussing our summer cultural highlights. Um, thank you so much, Emily and Samir, for joining us. Um, If you enjoyed the podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In the current issue, as well as Suck Dev excellent piece, you will find writing from Sheila Hancock, Rose Tremaine, Malcolm Rifkind, and many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.